So far in this series, we've talked about the history of social housing and the benefits of social housing. But what's it like to actually be responsible for the provision of council homes? Handily, a very good friend of mine is in charge of housing policy in a central London borough. Iden Dickadem is cabinet member for housing in Wandsworth Council. And for this episode, he talked to me about the challenges and opportunities he faces in his role. We also hear from a couple of people currently living in social housing on his patch. Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will give you access to all the episodes in this series and future ones and helps make this show possible. You can subscribe for as little as £3 a month. The other thing that would help the show are more reviews on whichever podcast app you're listening on. Um, So if you have an opinion on the show, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, please do leave a review. Aiden Dickadem, welcome to Crash Course. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, We've known each other more than a decade. Um, I trust you immensely politically. Um, And you're very well placed to speak on this podcast because you are cabinet member for housing in Wandsworth. So for anyone who doesn't know, that's a South London borough, fairly central. Um, Can you start by giving me some some background? How did you end up being the cabinet member of housing for Wandsworth? Yeah, I guess there's kind of different elements to it. So I think a large part comes from the two neighbourhoods that I grew up in when I was a kid. So, and I'm going to reveal my age here, but I've witnessed London change drastically in a way that I think some generations possibly haven't. So, you know, Battersea has undergone massive transformation compared to, you know, the early noughties. I just, I just have to say, when he says he's going to have to reveal his age, you're going to be really upset when you find out that his real age is 31 <laughs> because you're, you're thinking like, who is this old guy who's seen all of these changes in Battersea but actually... Iden is 31, so I don't, he, he can't speak like this. Anyway, continue. But, but I mean, you, you'll understand because your neighbourhood as well. So where my dad lives in Hackney, again, absolute transformation from when I was a kid. So I think a large part of it comes from seeing the place and the skyline and the neighbourhoods change in a way that you're going to question what's happening here. Like, what, what is this process? Um, a key kind of politicising moment for me was trying to save my school playgrounds against the Conservative Council in Wandsworth. So my school um, was an old kind of post-war uh, comprehensive called Elliot, and the Conservatives, when they came into government in 2010, scrapped something called Building Schools for the Future, which was to maintain school buildings. And so they sold off the playground to build market flats. So again, my first kind of time I ever entered the town hall was to go to a committee meeting where they were selling off this public land. So public land, again, is a kind of massive part of my political journey, like how you campaign to protect public assets. And then finally, the more granular details of becoming a local councillor was a bit of an accident. Like I I went to a selection meeting in 2016, nowhere near the front runner. I'd kind of been encouraged by local trades council to push a specific policy, which was ballots for estate regeneration, which if for those of you who don't know, you know, many councils were regenerating estates for a whole host of different reasons, but tenants didn't get a vote on whether they wanted the final scheme to happen. I thought, as well as many other people, and, you know, it was comrades who kind of educated me in this, like the, the democratic deficit there and how we could change policy. So I kind of turned up to that selection meeting to talk about housing in North Battersea and to try and get all the other candidates to sign up to that ballots policy and I ended up winning this election um, which has led me on a path to where I am now. And that ballots policy is that in place now? It is yeah that was one of the kind of a, a great kind of win for housing campaigners council housing campaigners in particular across across London. Um, I suppose the, the other detail so you became a councillor in 2016 correct and uh, but the Tories were in power in Wandsworth they've been in power for a very long time 44 years for 44 years so when did Labour win win that borough we finally won in May um, May 2022 um, a kind of historic night like many people had always said you never win Wandsworth you know it's the jewel in the Tory crown Thatcher's favourite council so it was a kind of historic historic moment um, it was it was great Sadiq you know Sadiq is a Wandsworth boy so he was down there um, celebrating with us all, but it was a it was an incredibly important night for us. And again, from the housing perspective, many of the kind of the the world we live in is a world that was built by policies tested in Wandsworth. So right to buy, um, the mass sell off of, of of council blocks on mass, um, many of the things that 
Shirley Porter is known for in Westminster were, were done in Wandsworth. And, you know, in fact, I'm not going to name them, but there's a, there's a councillor who my colleague tells me sat on the, sat, sat on the Council for Labour at the same time as this councillor from the 80s. And whenever he sees him, he says, oh, you nearly got me, you nearly got me. You know, they got Shirley Porter, but they didn't get the, the same people in Wandsworth who were doing similar things. Um, and what they got her for was sort of intentionally socially engineering the borough to get poor people out to try and make it more conservative. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose, again, very briefly, um, you were housing spokesman when Labour were in opposition. Labour win the council. You get made cabinet member for housing. I suppose some of... Um, our listeners might think that guy just said comrade. How did they allow this guy in in a cabinet of a Labour council in in twenty twenty two? Oh, it's a twenty twenty three, I should say. <laughs> broad church, Michael. Broad church. Broad also, church. I, I okay. To, if I'm if I'm totally honest with you, that is one of the best things about being in a borough where you're actually fighting the Tories. You're in a you're a marginal borough um, because it means that you, you you pull together on on policy. And my leader Simon worked for Shelter for years. You know, he on on housing. I can't think of someone who I'm more uh, aligned with. So, uh, you know, you know me. I'm a stay and fight person. I'm on the left of the Labour Party, but I think Wandsworth is a really special place because our group is really kind of driven on the basis of like trying to change things because of what we've had to go through in opposition and what we've seen happen to the borough that we love and, and many of us have grown up in. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if you're, you know, if, if you're a Labour councillor in, say, Hackney, where I live, your biggest opponent, you're, you're, the biggest threat to you is someone from a different faction of the Labour Party, right? Because, you know, Labour are never going to lose that council. Whereas in Wandsworth, the biggest threat to you is not the different factions in the Labour Party, it's, it's the Conservatives because it's a genuine marginal. Um, let's... Uh, talk about Battersea, talk about Wandsworth and paint a picture of what it's like, especially in terms of housing. We're going to go to a couple of clips. You introduced me um, to a couple of residents in in Battersea. So we did some interviews. The first person we spoke to was a lady called Tina. Um, In around, I think, her her late 60s, she had a wonderful little dog in her incredibly decorated um, council flat. Um, And she'd lived in social housing her whole life. So when we met her, um, I asked her to give us some background um, as to what that life in social housing in Wandsworth, in Battersea, had been like. So what happened, Mummy and Daddy got married in 1959, so there wasn't much council then. Mm-hmm. So what they did, they lived in private, like they had one room. They only had one room and then they had to share the toilet, the bathroom and everything else. Do you know what I mean? Because that's how it was in them days. And then later on in life, they started building the flats. And then, like, I think it was when I was about five in the 60s, that's when we moved up to um, Union Road, just up the top of the road. That's when Mummy and Dad got their first property, which was a two-bedroom. And was that one they owned or was that a council? No, that was council. That was was run by GLC Mm. because it was all GLC then, you know. And then, like, as I say, we all grew up, all got older, all got bigger and then my other brother come along so the property was too small so they give us mummy a, a bigger one round the corner which was a free bed because it was three children and we was getting old so that's how they done it so we lived there and then they built Kerry Gardens don't quote me but I think it was 1976 77 and everybody was offered a property down here because this was a brand new estate, you know, so you think, oh, yeah, lovely, isn't it, you know? So everybody come down here, and everybody moved on Kerry Gardens. And so you moved here with your parents as well at that yeah, time? You were yeah, still with, with my them. parents, I still with my How parents. How old were you when this estate opened, you know? Oh, I think it was about 15. About 15. It was about 15, yeah, and, like, it's always been a good estate. And, like, obviously, you grew up here. And then, as I told you, I moved out, got married when I was 21. And I went to Win Stanley. And then I came back. And then I've lived on this estate ever since with my mum. My mum lives around the corner now. And, uh, yeah, we've just lived in this area. We love this area because my mum... I suppose what really stuck out to me in, in that conversation is how, throughout Tina's life, whenever circumstances changed the council was kind of able to accommodate that, right? So you have a family who, I mean, it sounds like they live in very overcrowded housing, you know, straight after the war. They have kids. A council estate gets built, Kerry Gardens. The parents are moved into that. But then as the family grows in size, they can get a bigger flat. Then as one of the children wants to move out and get married, she can get a council flat. Then she decides she wants to move closer to her mum so the council can accommodate that and she moves closer to her mum. Now, you know, 
some people might be listening to that thinking like, oh, this spoiled lady getting mollycoddled by the state. Whenever her life circumstances changes, she gets to change. But actually, this sounds to me just like what life should should be 100%, like. 100%. 100%. I think that mindset where people now are like, oh, well, you know, that was too good. Are we, are, that is crazy. Like the principles that you're hearing in that story is housing as a public good, as something that is foundational for families to get on in life. The fact that we live in a world now where we're, you know, I've listened to some of your other podcasts, the situation facing private renters where they're putting down deposits out, bidding each other, queuing up around the block, the situation facing social tenants on the waiting list, then the situation facing those in temporary accommodation. This is unacceptable. This is not a way to live a good life. This is going to give you mental health issues. This is going to cause you, you know, so much stress, so much drama. It financially makes no sense to the state. So, you know, the story that Tina tells is a story of this public good that made people's lives better. And we're kind of living in the, 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 the ashes of that system. And we can talk about the process that led to that. But, you know, what Tina is describing is what we should all be able to access. And particularly, you know, if those who need it, that should be the way that housing works in this country. And we talked to someone in a different situation who I suppose, you know, can teach us how the story has changed. Um, so she's much younger than Tina. She has a school age child. It's called Michelle. And during the lockdown, um, she had to leave the house she was living in and so seek housing support from the council. Uh, yeah, so we grew up with four, four generations in the household, all women. So myself, my daughter, my mum and my grandmother. Um, and it just became quite contentious. So my grandmother is from the Caribbean, Dominica. Um, but my mum and I, my daughter, were born and raised here. Um, so my granny's old school, and you know, they say, don't live with your parents for a reason. Um, my mum and I get on like a house on fire, we're more like sisters, probably because she had me quite young, and she was about 18, 19 years old. Um, so we, yeah, we, we, we get on really well, but my relationship with my gran is quite different. Um, not to go too much into detail, but she's quite difficult to live with. And I think um, with lockdown and being at home almost 24-7, the things that grate on you in everyday life was just elevated and um, arguments would ensue. And I just felt like I can't live in this environment, especially with my daughter, who's now 10. I was probably eight at the time. Um, I had to get her out. I couldn't, literally, I couldn't stay any longer. So that was Michelle's situation. She'd been living in a house she grew up in in Battersea. There were four generations there. It was owned um, by her gran. And the situation became unlivable, as you heard. She went on to ask the council for somewhere to live for her and her daughter. What happened then um, was they put her in temporary accommodation in Croydon. That's about 10 miles south of Battersea. Um, and I'm going to play you another clip of, of Michelle because I asked her to talk about the toll moving 10 miles to Croydon took on her and her daughter. Uh, well, when I first showed her the studio flat that we were in in Croydon, um, she actually liked it and she jumped on the bed and said, wow, this is amazing. You know, um, the novelty soon wore off as um, it was, she found it really hard being away from her friends being away from my mum, her grandmother, and just not being able to access those relationships on a physical level um, easily. Um, And it was was tough for her emotionally and mentally, and I was worried about her mental state as well as my own, and that was one of the things I tried to keep pressing on to the council, that this is affecting us. Not, well, not, not just financially, because I have to get a travel card, um, but mentally, emotionally, our support network is in southwest London and we're all the way over here. It's really difficult to get to school. It's, it's an easy journey. It's just inconvenient. It's straightforward, but inconvenient. Um, and she would be on at me. When's the council going to move us? When's the council? I don't know, it's out of my hands, love. I can't, there's nothing I can do. I can only try, can only get try and get support. Um, but not much to do, what I can do. And also another thing was going to the laundrette. We weren't allowed to have washing machines. I don't actually have one now, I need to get one. Um, 
but it was that constant going back and forth to the laundrette it was just so much pressure and I was doing a course it was just a lot to come home to get her to do her homework to make dinner do after school activities I was doing a course at the time um, and teaching choir as well it was literally I felt like I was going to have a breakdown at times it was very tough for the both of us so that was Michelle, I suppose, telling quite a different story um, to Tina of what happened when she was in housing need. Now, I don't know, you were quite involved um, in Michelle's case. What can you add to, to what we just heard? So I think the temporary accommodation crisis in London is this secret scandal that, um, and, and nationally, that doesn't get the attention that it should and is, I think, the kind of clear indicator of how broken the system is. So Wandsworth in particular, Wandsworth has, I think, the sixth highest use of temporary accommodation uh, nationally. Um, We have very high house prices, very high rent prices, very high land values. um, And we have had a restricted supply of social housing for reasons I can get on to later. But, you know, in simple terms, long-term conservative administration that didn't prioritise social housing. Now, this temporary accommodation scandal really starts in 2010 because in 2010 we had I think it was you know a couple of hundred people in temporary accommodation as of last week we have 3,600 households in temporary accommodation this explosion in the use of temporary accommodation directly linked to local housing allowance benefit restriction under austerity directly linked to lack of supply of social housing, directly linked to the private rented sector becoming unaffordable to families that for a long time would have just rented affordably in the private rented sector. So you've got these different factors on Michelle's case. It's that breakdown of family home. And that that is, you know, when we break down the, the reasons people become homeless, it's, it's arguments with family when they're, you know, like you, you mentioned, four generations under one roof during lockdown. It's yeah, we should say that's not the traditional yeah. breakdown of because normally a breakdown of family you think a nuclear family this is four generations which yep. is surprising they were living in the same flat well, in the first place. Well, well, no, because you know previously when I was growing up, you know, if you were eighteen, you could get access to social housing. Now you've got to be twenty-one. Um, these changes to the the way that we allocate housing as a you know local authority means that you've often got families living like that until waiting on the waiting list for a long time in overcrowded accommodation. So you've got you've got people in temporary accommodation who are waiting. Then you've got the people who are in housing. Now, th- in her case, it wasn't a council flat, but you've got people waiting on the waiting list for that social housing who are in overcrowded housing in the first place. Um, you've got so people get served section twenty ones. And then you've got all the kind of various multifaceted reasons people become homeless, be it domestic violence um, and, and things like that. So you've got this pipeline of people that are in need of secure housing and the council no longer has the supply uh, uh, to house them. So this new industry has been created of this temporary accommodation, which is often us renting back the flats that we had built that were sold under right to buy that are now owned by a, a landlord. And the, the, the rates are massive. Also, this accommodation is often the poorest quality accommodation because councils across London are all competing against each other. So we're all competing for the, and you, and you know, look what the private rented sector is like at the moment. So it's an absolute seller's market. So the kind of worst accommodation in the in the in places that are far away and out of borough, we have to go out of borough because we can't afford to stay in the borough because the reason why we, people are homeless in the first place is because the borough is too unaffordable. So there's this huge competition between local authorities. So. It is just outrageous. It is a massive waste of public money because this is often money that's being funneled into into private hands. Now, the placement that Michelle ended up in where we interviewed her is a council-owned block, but it's in block earmarked for, for demolition. So in that instance, the rent that she's paying is coming back to the local authority. So it's better than when it's in a, a, a kind of uh, a private rented sector accommodation that's being used as temporary accommodation outside of borough. But this this scan of temporary accommodation is one that I have wrestled with for absolute years now. And, you know, obviously the pipeline of, of available social housing is crucial to, to ending this scandal. But I think it's something that people don't quite recognise. Like I think there's probably between 66 and 70,000 families now in temporary accommodation across London. And this is just an it's just the worst use of resources and it's an, and it's the toll that it takes on people like 
having to, you know, I've, I speak to families who sometimes have to travel two hours by bus to get to primary school. Now, primary school starts, what, 8.30? So these kids are waking up at 5.30. You know, it, it, the, the stress that it has, the d disconnection from your, from your roots, the not knowing what's going to happen. Now, you know, I, I back my team massively. And one of the things that we've done the moment we got in was put more resource into that team because under austerity, a lot of the homelessness departments were cut just as the crisis was taking off. So you've got this dual problem of the people who are trying to solve this problem and allocate people housing, having huge caseloads. So we're trying to, to get more involved in prevention, but this is something that I just wish there was more focus on in the media because the temporary accommodation scandal is is probably some of the worst accommodation and some of the worst, you know, experiences of housing in the city. And so, yeah, so with Michelle, she got moved out to private accommodation in Croydon for a year and she got moved back to Battersea to live in a, a state due for demolition, So, she, right? so she'd be, be closer to school. So she can be closer to school. Um, her moving to Croydon, the timing means that the Tories were in power um in Wandsworth at that point so it was the Tories who moved her to Croydon if she'd had this um situation two years later when Labour were in in, in power in the council would she still have got moved to Croydon you know yeah, if this happened we now she still would... we still we we have a, a policy of consent when it's outside of London but we have to look around I mean this this the, the change is going to be around our delivery of social housing, which we can come on to. So that pipeline to ensure that we slowly get to reduce the number of people in temporary accommodation. Um, but the reality is, and this is a reality for councils across London, is that we don't have the supply of social housing to meet the demand for it. And when that happens, you end up with a temporary accommodation crisis. And because our, our own boroughs are becoming more and more unaffordable, and because rents are spiking, you know, in the PRS, all those people that for a long time probably would have qualified for, for social housing, but were holding it down in the PRS, that is kind of dying out. People are being forced out. You end up in this situation, they move back into parents' house or whatever, and then that breaks down. Or they, they get served straight Section 21, they don't have family around anymore, they're, they're, they're into TA. Um, this is kind of becoming an almost industry of housing because of the number of people that, that rely on it. But like I say, imagine if that money was going into the building of actual, rather than kind of crisis management, was going into the building of actual social housing for people. Now, I'll give you an example. When the sweat happened, which is the severe weather, uh, when temperature drops, we have to go and collect rough sleepers to make sure that they're housed safely. Um, we have a kind of a statutory duty on that. When SWAP happened in Wandsworth, there, we could not find any temporary accommodation. That, the, the market was so tight, that it was just, we couldn't find it. We had to set up, and they worked really well, but we had to set up in kind of, church halls and community club rooms and, you know, get, get sleeping bags out and get hot food. And I went down to a, a, one of them and, and, and saw what was going on. And you, it, it makes you realise the, the nature of the crisis where local authorities can't even procure the kind of overnight stuff. I mean, the only place we could find was in Hounslow and we knew no one, if we said, okay, by the way, we've got your combination in Hounslow, that, that's not going to get someone off the street. So we couldn't really go with it. But that's how severe it is. You know, we can't even procure the overnight stay that we need when the sweat happens. That's the nature of the crisis. And how did, I mean, I suppose on a very day-to-day -day level, who's, who are you responsible for housing and, and how does that work? So, you know, the, there's obviously lots of people in the private rental sector who they might get housing benefit from the central government, but they're not really your problem. Who, I mean, actually we might talk about to the extent to which you might try and yeah. sort of have some control over private landlords, but your main, your, your main responsibility is over these people who are, how, what do we say? They're in housing need? Housing need. So it's a 2017 Homelessness Reduction Act, which kind of sets out the statutory guidance. But, uh, you know, anyone can come to the council who's facing homelessness. You know, you, if you, even if you're a you know, young professional in the PRS, uh, you can, and, and you've been served as Section 21. Uh, so PRS, got, just private, private rental sector. sector. Yeah, you've got 50, uh, I think it's 56 days. Um, and the council helps you in that for, to find you alternative accommodation. Normally, again, in the, in the PRS. Most people don't claim that duty, but those... You know, uh, on, on who are you know str struggling with housing, uh, you know, often ha have lower incomes. They're they're the ones that that safety net is there to really provide for. Um, but people do people do use it. I've I've, I've I think I've actually um, yeah I, I recently helped someone who who is not the kind of person that ever thought they'd have to interact with the homelessness reduction act. Um, and then we have to 
find housing and then we find out whether we have a duty to house the person based on the same qualifying criteria that you would have for social housing and most people who enter into temporary accommodation fall under that duty not all of them so some people will have a short stay until we release the duty and then they have to find their own accommodation but the way of the system at the moment and the, the kind of people that are, are, are falling into this this category are those who the council probably owes a duty to anyway um, when what, what 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 would mean you have a duty so it, it's to do with you know the, the same duty that would get you into into social social housing so um that's based on the 1970 act i mean it's, it's when you go into it you realize that so for instance like you know single men able-bodied single men regardless of income, very rare that you're going to get the duty unless there's some other qualifying categories because, and that's always been the case. Um, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the same as when you're applying for social housing. Do you meet the criteria, which is income threshold, dependency, uh, family needs, medical history. There's a whole kind of allocations criteria. Um, let's go to one more clip. We're going to go back to Tina. Um, so she's the, the first person we, we spoke to. Um, and she's talking about Nine Elms. Now, this is the biggest development, I think, in, in Battersea over the past few decades. I mean, if, if, if you walk um, on the south of, of the Thames through um, Battersea and Wandsworth, you cannot miss these huge skyscrapers that have gone up. Um, most of them what we'd probably call luxury flats. Um, it's very much in central London. Let's hear Tina's account of how Nine Elms has changed. Just a little whip down the line there, where the Nine Elms buildings are, you know, where the American Embassy is. There used to be a big baths there, because people never had washing machines when I was a little girl. You know what I mean? So they used to go to the baths, get your old pram, and then you go down there with all your washing, and then mummy and everybody else would be in there with the old scrubbing balls and the little washing place and like the little dryers they had. And then we'd be in, they used to have a swimming pool next door. And then like all the children could go in the swimming pool because it was for the area, you know what I mean? And it was lovely, it was lovely, it was great. Everybody loved going down the old baths, they used to call it, you know? And then they took all that away. They took everything away. It's it's not good, it's not good. I, when I went down there and I, and I don't go down there very much, but I had to go down that area and I couldn't believe with my eyes, that ain't the Battersea I grew up in. Mm. That ain't the Battersea I grew up in. No way. It's it's not nice at all. It is not nice at all. You know? They got so, rid of the public pools for the they sky They got rid pool. of all the pools. Obviously, they got rid of the baths. Everything went. Everything. And then they just put all these flats up. Every little crook and cranny is a little bit of gland. Oh, let's get some of them uh, money people flats up. Do you know what I mean? Nothing for that us. Don't matter about us breaking all our people up and we've got, our kids have got to move out because years ago the council used to do a second generation, what they used to call second generation. So if I lived on, like my mate lived on this estate, then you'd get one because you're, you're second generation. So you'd be all together. All the families was together. But they'd stopped all that. That went out the window. So you never had no more of that. Do you see what I mean? And now all they think about is building these flats here all around us, right? And all it is is money people. And people, why are they doing this to people, decent people who've worked all their life? I worked all my life till I got ill. We can't help it. Things happen in your life. You just, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And when you get ill, like I know a lot of people around here worked all their life, been ill and can't even get a property because there isn't any, because they want to keep building all this stuff. So that was Tina's uh, account of how, you know, she's witnessed the development of Battersea and it doesn't seem like it's for people like her. And I, do, I think the contrasting sort of this, this very sort of nostalgic memory towards like the barving or the bathing house and, and the laundrette. And now you hear someone else. I say, I, I do not have time to go to the laundrette because I'm working too hard and I'm a single mom, et cetera, et cetera. A very different relationship to, to, to some of these things. Um, but can you talk about, yeah, Nine Elms? So I, I presume there are actually lots more housing units in Wandsworth than there were previously, but you still have more of a homeless crisis than you had before i mean can you talk about that yeah so uh under the conservatives and this is uh, you know i've i've talked kind of historically about wandsworth and its policies you know uh there's a great pamphlet from the glc called municipal monetarism which simon gave me when i was an up-and-coming councillor and you know we always talk about neoliberalism being born in 
Chile and I make jokes that it was born in Wandsworth because it kind of goes through the the, the, the policies of outsourcing, privatisation. and But the bit I did experience, the bit I, I lived through, uh, uh, you know, uh, was the Nine Elms moment, uh, which is Nine Elms was a kind of industrial, industrial brownfield site right along the Thames. Um, and again, like I was saying at the start, people forget, you know, when I was a teenager, I could, on the weekend go and climb around abandoned factories on the riverside. Like you can't imagine that world now. That those those spaces don't exist. They've been demolished and they're being used for all kinds of different things. But there was there was empty space in 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 London. Um and Nine Elms was that that empty space. And for a long time the council had been like, what can we do to do something with this land? Particularly the Batsy Power Station, which had led, you know, big iconic building, but kind of left left to rot. And the Conservatives were really, really keen on something happened here. They'd kind of pinned their legacy on it. And uh, Edward Lister, who I recommend all your listeners go and Google, um, particularly where he went after Wandsworth Council into Boris Johnson's office and then what he did further to that and his relationship with property developers. But Edward Lister had a big vision around the power station. And there was a planning application put in through Treasury Holdings, which was an Irish property company that was a kind of scheme. Now, the 2008 financial crash happens and we, at some point we've got to return to the 2008 financial crash because I think a lot of London's issues revolve around political decisions that were made after the crash. But the crash happens and the council is very worried that the regeneration schemes are going to f- fall through because developers are now in a big, a lot of trouble. So they pin the pre-crash land value to the planning application in order to make the scheme continue to be viable. Now, Treasury Holdings was an Irish property company. It ended up collapsing anyway. And a uh, Malaysian state-run pension fund took over the the power station. This is just a power station, but it's all interlinked because it was a kind of main regeneration area. Um, So you've got this pre-crash planning application, land value, but post-crash land value. So, so the state intervened in order to artificially protect the developers, tying the planning application to the land values that were pre-crash. Obviously, land values they collapsed. Bought, so, 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 so to be clear, so the, the Irish company you're talking about, they bought the land before the crash. Yeah. And they were in trouble because after the crash, land fell in value. So they now had... I, I mean, f- for a mortgage holder, you'd call it negative equity. Mm. They presumably borrowed a lot of money to buy this piece of land. And then after that, it was worth less than it was before. And to help them out, to prop them up. The, the council pushed through the planning application and the viability based on the pre-crash. Right, we probably need to values. take a few yeah. a few steps back as well. So when a, when a developer says, we want to make a development, right? The council can make certain demands of them. We want social housing yeah. built here. We want this many affordable homes. The developer, what they say is, well, we can meet your demands only to the extent that we're still able to finish this development and make a profit. And that means they'll they'll put together a balance sheet, I suppose, saying the land costs this much, the 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 physical development will cost this much, um, the planning application itself costs this much, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they will say, um, we only make a profit if you let us build um, no more than 10% social housing. This all, cha- this all, I'm going to come on to that because this okay. all changes. This all changes in 2012. So I'll try and break it down really simply, which is that basically the best analysis, the most generous analysis is conservative council worried that regeneration plans are not going to happen. How do we encourage developers to continue to come to Nine Elms and do something here post-crash? Now there's a national picture, 2012 national policy planning framework the changing of the definition of affordable housing from what we understand as social housing to intermediate rent, which can be 80% market rent and shared ownership products and things like that. You've also got the protection of uh, the internal rate of return of profit for developers. So earmarking a certain amount of profit that a developer can make um, to make it a, a valuable risk in the climate of the crash. Or is entitled to make. Entitled right? to they make, say well, yeah. we have to. What yeah. is it? We- uh, it was between. I think it was fifteen to twenty percent. So I think quite, it was might. Big margin. It was huge because well, I mean, during the last decade, how much did your bank give you interest? I'm in, I'm, I'm in. I'm in my overdraft. Yeah. Well, exactly. So. We were all making zero point one percent, whatever. And, you know, it's changed now. Um, but but so that's a healthy a healthy return. You know, it wasn't six percent. It wasn't. You know. Um, anyway, as well as that, and this is the key to Nine Elms, is the tube station. 
because they say we're going to use the section 106 the money would we would usually use for affordable housing for social housing uh we're going to use that section 106 and we're going to plow it into the tube line because the development won't work the developers won't come here unless we have the tube line now it's the, it's the part of wandsworth well of, of battersea north battersea that is the closest to Vauxhall, but look, I'm I'm for I'm for public transport investment. But the Faustian pact that was made was it was that section 106 that should have been for council housing. Now that improves the developers' profits. That improves, you know, it's it's like a tax that is supposed to be to provide public good being used for something that is going to boost developers' profits, which are already enshrined. So Nine Elms ends up with the Wandsworth section ends up with a 15 percent cap they cap the amount of affordable housing that the site should deliver which would normally be 35 percent they cap it at 15 percent take that chunk plow it into the tube line tina doesn't have any ownership over the tube line mm. she doesn't receive any with the ones doesn't receive any rents from it in the same way we would social housing so it, it was this public private partnership during the crash now let's think of a let's think of a a, a way in which i mean it, when I think about what we would do, if we had that land now, the things we could do with it, I mean, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, I, sometimes I can't sleep. I think about, we could solve the 3,600 families in, in, in uh, you know, temporary accommodation if we had that land space and we could go into a, you know, a joint venture relationship or, you know, whatever. By and by, Nine Elms is artificially lowering to 15% affordable housing um, at a time in which quantitative easing is about to create a massive asset boom because, you know, not that I'm against quantitative easing and the useful way to solve the crash, but you have to recognise the implications of that macroeconomic po policy, which is suddenly all this money hungry to look for assets that are giving a strong return. Housing in London is doing that. So it's like gasoline on the fire because you're suddenly removing, artificially, you know, consciously, politically lowering the, the the level of affordable housing that you should normally provide on, an, on a, on a neighbourhood um, and Nine Elms is kind of the, the, the visual representation of that. Now, alongside that is a long-running policy of the Conservatives to use that change in affordability definition to provide a, a much higher amount of intermediate rent and shared ownership than they do social housing. So Wandsworth, over the decade that I grew up in, was one of the largest private house built. Um, you know, its planning applications committee, you know, it built more private housing than any or approved more. Approved more, more. More private housing was built yeah, in Wandsworth by, by private developers. it was approved by the council. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think than any other place in the, the country. Um, now, the local plan said that 30% of that needed to be affordable. Only 20% of it ended up affordable. Of that 20% that was affordable, less than 5% turned out to be social housing. So you, you've said there was, a there was a change in the definition of affordable housing. What was it? What is it now? And you say it changed in 2012? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so now affordable housing includes things like shared ownership, um, which makes up most the bulk of the affordable housing in Nine Elms. Um, intermediate rent, which varies. There are different types of it, but it, it kind of staircases up to 80%. Um, and then social rent, social, social rent. And what was rent. it before? Uh, I'm fairly certain that before it was just, there was, there, was, there was social housing. There was social housing. I think there were products there were there were new and upcoming affordable products in the noughties like shared ownership but th th never in the same way was affordable housing lumped together in this kind of because th someone who can afford 80% market rate in nine elms and someone who needs social housing are totally different totally different people and that's the big again why is our temporary accommodation list so high it's because the pipeline of private development did not deliver the social housing for those residents in temporary accommodation. If I if I look at the pipeline of, of affordable housing that is going to happen over the next couple of years, because obviously there we've got legacy from the Conservatives, that is not housing I can allocate to my general needs queue. So as a council, we are starting to move back to prioritising the kind of housing that can be allocated to that general needs queue, and that's the people in temporary accommodation or overcrowded currently in our council's accommodation. Which is why you're prioritising building social housing. And we'll move on to that in one second. First of all, I just want to make sure I've got clear in my head exactly the story you just told about Nine Elms and, and what went wrong. Yeah. So essentially you've got this this big slice of land, or huge slice of land in central London. Um, uh, uh, an Irish property developer, I'm only saying that to distinguish them because I can't remember the actual names of Treasury these property holdings. developers. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying it's, it was the Irishness of this developer that made <laughs> this happen. 
but there was a there was a developer that happened to be Irish that bought this land before 2008, right? So the, the land was very expensive. They said we've... There was a multiplicity of holdings. I, okay, let me try and break it down to you in the most right. simple way. Brownfield site, lots of private owners of the site. What are we going to do with the site? Council says, okay, here are some options and throws lots and lots of incentives at private developers to build on the site. The crash happens. Those, in, those incentives are, are, are maximized because of the crash, because they're even more worried now what's going what's so to happen. They, they add more incentives. They add more so, because incentives. Because the previous incentives no longer look Tube, attractive enough. So. Lowering the amount of affordable right. housing, keeping the pre, pre-crash planning application, so the land value. Like we, the, the local authority, and I've spoken to officers about this, could have started buying land. Loads of people wanted to get rid of the land because they're like, we're not going to be able to develop here. But they didn't want to do that. They wanted the private sector to be the leaders in that development. So that's why I say Nine Elms is very kind of neoliberal because it's the state intervening to allow the private sector to do something which ends up reducing the amount of public good that the local authority in the state could actually get from it. That's what, I mean, that is the kind of definition of neoliberalism, right? It's like that state intervention to facilitate the loss of public good. Um, now, Nine Elms to me, you know, Tina talks a lot about, you know, she doesn't like the density of it and stuff like that. For me, it's, Nine Elms is is not about the the, the density or the skyscrapers. It's about the public good that we could have got. I, if we can, if if you're building nine elms and you're getting your thirty five percent, forty percent social housing, great, great, because that's housing that I can give to local families. The problem with nine elms is that is not what happened, and that could have happened, and that was a once in a generation opportunity. And some people say, well, you know, Iden, what could you know? When I when I when I have pressed people on this who are a bit more kind of uh, uh, I, I guess, uh, sympathetic. They say, well, they had to do something, otherwise there would have been nothing there. And I think, well, actually, sometimes waiting five years and 10 years and getting a huge amount of public good that will last for 100 years is a better thing to so do. you don't get the land back. Because the land is now gone. And I suppose just to make sure I'm clear on the tube station issue, um, so when you apply for planning permission to develop a large development Right, you, you, the council is allowed to ask for something in return. So it might be to section say, 106, yeah. s- section 106, sorry. So, so they might say, we want 35% social housing. They might say, we want 30% affordable housing. Or they might say, we want we you just to want build money. something. Yeah, we just want capital we just receipts. Want cash, or we want you to build a school, I think sometimes often happens as well. And in this case, they said, we'll let you build this with basically no affordable housing if you instead pay for a tube station, which it just so happened increased the value of all those properties they just built. Exactly. Um, so yes, you can see how that seems a bit of a stitch up. And again, if you think about the, what, what are the alternative to that? Cause I, I'm, tube station is great. We love, we love public transport, but we just had a crash. Imagine the kind of Keynesian stimulus, a state funded infrastructure program would have done the jobs. This, you know, it's not, you know, people often, I think, uh, mischaracterize our opposition to nine elms as like, you know, you're just against progress. You're against, you know, what are you talking about? It's, it's about public good and thinking seriously about public good. And I think my experience of seeing what happened to my school playground is based on that because we have to think about our assets and our land as things that are going to be giving back to the public for a long, long time. And what we've instead seen is kind of the mass privatization of the city I grew up in. Let's talk about now you guys are in power now that, that you are cabinet member for housing. Um, as you've you know intimated towards a number of times, your priority is now building social housing to get people off that temporary accommodation list. Um, how are you going about that? So we've got a whole host of different things on delivery. So the first is, um, if we think about the private uh, developments that we just discussed, Labour councils all across London ask for 35% and they get 35%. Because and thirty five percent of what affordable Sorry. housing, but 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 so is is that intermediate rent? Is that shared ownership? Is that social so? So then, they, so then, different local authorities push on different different parts. Um, so they'll say, and also you've got to understand that the the I, I was going to try and ask something simply, but it always gets technical. But it is more financially viable to not deliver social housing because of the rental return. So that's why the affordability definition changes are so relevant because when you ask for that section 106 and this is the same with housing associations and so on there's an incentive to get imr or intermediate market rent or shared ownership because the return per footage of land is is the return for who the council or for the developer for the developer right because you buy into the section 106 housing associations on affordable housing will buy into section 106 and so 
but anyway, back back to back to Wandsworth. Um, yeah, just 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 having clear guidance and, and rules and saying we we want to prioritise social housing. That is our gold standard of tenure. That is the tenure that we're most interested in. Um, and you know we'll be serious on negotiating the, the highest levels of social housing we can. Um, but we want our, you know you, you you if you come to this local authority, you got to give the thirty five percent. And and councils across London have been doing that. And in Wandsworth, they weren't. They, and the developers are beholden to their shareholders. You know they if they know a local authority is they just have to push on the door and it's going to open. That's what they're going to do. So that's a clear first step. Is you know saying. Wandsworth now expects if you want to be a private developer and then you have to provide uh, genuinely affordable housing. Um, the second thing is our own council build scheme. Now, can you remember the 2018 local elections when you were out door knocking on the I door? I thought you were going to ask me about some 2018 piece no, of legislation. I no, was like, no, no, this no. is not allowed. No, I do remember campaigning yeah. for you on the, in the 2018 yeah. um, elections. We came really close. Uh, we lost by 143 votes spread over four wards. Um, we really pushed our turnout up, turnout up, but they also pushed their turnout up. And one of the things, you know, one of the key battlegrounds was housing policy. And the Conservatives did this incredible pivot. They came up with something called the Thousand Homes Programme, um, which was a council delivery programme, infill programme. Like, because many councils across London, uh, you know, strapped for cash, what we do have is pockets of our own land. So instead of having to buy expensive London land, Every pound that we spend is spent on bricks and mortar building on our own land. So it's a, the, the only way we can really affordable, affordably deliver council housing. Now, they came up with a thousand homes program, which was a cross subsidy scheme. Um, they were going to build r- roughly 400 council units uh, and then the rest market and shared ownership. Um, we luckily have taken over the council before the market and the shared ownership units got built. And we had a clear policy, which is that if you're using public land, that has to deliver a public asset, not something that is going to end up in private hands. Um, So we have flipped the whole thousand homes program to a thousand council homes, council rent homes on our own land. And we, I'm I'm not sure if we're the only council uh, who's who's done that, but for us, it's a key, key principle and the way we're affording to do that because it is expensive is we're taking out long-term loans to pay for that like a mortgage um but we think any any housing that gets built on public land should be for the public good. so 50-year loans right yeah so super long super long term but it's yeah. going to be a, you know a pretty secure asset that's how we've made it viable we've moved from is that from a private bank uh it, we're, well it, we haven't established where we're going to get it from right. but there's there are banks that have you know there's public works board loans and things like that um uh and, and, uh, and uh, this is over five years, the 1,000? No, no. So it's probably likely to be over two terms. The 1,000 Homes Programme was always over two terms. So, so eight years? Uh, r- roughly. We, we're on the, thousand, on, the, on the getting to the 1,000 number, we are totally pragmatic. Like we'll be doing right to buyback. So we'll be buying old council homes. We'll be doing our own delivery programme and we'll just chug along and we can talk about the difficulties and challenges of, of, of council delivery and infill. Um, we'll be negotiating section 106 agreements. Uh, there are different ways. And, and for us, it's about what is the best, you know, we're under austerity. What is the best bang for buck? Is it, you know, sometimes upping the amount of right to buy back if prices, you know, really slump again, then purchasing uh, ex council flats bought under right to buy, turning them back into council flats is, is good use. But then we have to factor in, new build, like new build will last for a long, long time, buying back flats from the 60s that sometimes, you know, might not be at the spec that we want or might not have the same kind of lifetime left. There are all kinds of challenges. But for me, it's just like, how much social housing can we can we get? And I mean, I understand the constraints you're under, but I, I suppose my initial reaction when I hear that is a thousand homes over eight years. Doesn't sound that much. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, compared to... Other local authorities, I think it's like an incredibly radical scheme because we're like, we're not doing cross-subsidy. It's all council rent. And that is, I think, Could you build more if you did cross-subsidy? Could you you build higher and do cross-subsidy and say, we'll do 50% council homes, 50% private, but we'll pay for it all by selling off these, the top floors to rich people? No, no. So the, I mean, we'll be maximizing the, the 
units per site regardless it's not it isn't it's not like you you're allowed to just add stories and it doesn't it don't it don't work like that but um does it not work like, so maybe explain that a little bit so in in private in private development it 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 you know you can you can do that say say the the developer says uh okay look and and we again there's so much things to discuss in housing but you know we're about to enter into the probably the worst period for house building you know you've got record inflation build costs and and in the sector itself you know it's like 30 percent um so we're we're entering into basically a housing downturn at the moment and and many schemes are stalling because of that but a developer might turn around and say look viability is no longer holding up anymore can we add two more stories on and your planning applications committee has a decision then to decide should we should we do it you know uh and in you know in my opinion you're trying to maximize you said go for it well, it's it, you know, dep- always depends on the scheme. But in my my general opinion is that I you know I just want to get as much social housing as possible and affordable housing for people. Um, some people really density is their thing. It's not for for me. We're in London. Land values are really high. We're going to have to become more dense. But on our own schemes, on our own schemes, we're ma- you know it's not we're, we're going to m- maximize the amount of council housing. That, you know, every unit that we add. That is market housing? How would that benefit? It, it, it doesn't. This is a public scheme. It's a well, if it pays for it to get council. taller, I suppose. So, so, if, so how how talks? Let's go, go real granular. So, how you, you've got pockets of land where you're building a council block, or you're building? A, I mean, what what kind of well, house? So are you the building? planning, the local planning authority will always make sure that the a, a private developer who turns up can't just build a, a ginormous skyscraper anywhere they want. The planning yeah. authority wouldn't allow that anyway. So, all of our all of our council things have to go through. The planning authority, and we don't get any special privilege treatment. It has to go through all the same things that a private developer would. So what I'm saying is that your idea that, that there's by adding market housing to a full council scheme, all you're doing is reducing a unit that would be council housing. So you're already building them as tall as they can be. Yeah. So they're already okay. Yeah. So so you're, you're and for anyone with- listening who's near one of those sites, that will be within the planning regulation. So we're not going to build. We're not going to build. Because no de- private developer on these sites, I think if you want to talk in detail about infill and councils are being forced into, like we said, we've inherited a conservative scheme and the scheme, all, all we've done to change that scheme and that pipeline is to flip all of it to council rent because we think that's the... So you're building exactly the same number of units? Exact same number of units. Okay. We're just flipping it to, yep, to yep, council yep, yep. rent. The, the, the challenge then is like, you know, these are often sites which are, you know, they're garages they're bits of brownfields but they are on our existing estates often so you've got a really important balancing act um because people get really nervous like no one likes to have development near them one of the best things about it all being council housing is the local lettings plan so if you have to experience the disruption of you know someone building on your garages or a, a kind of bit of vacant parking lot people who live on that estate get first dibs on the new properties um and this speaks back to the point you made about the thousand homes not being enough. You know, oh, you've got 3,600 people on the waiting list. It's not enough. Now, I'm not going to say that it's, it's, it's going to solve the housing crisis overnight with this scheme. We're not. We're, we're literally maximizing. Um, I think of it as, is there anything I'm not doing? Is there anything with the power and resource I have that I'm not doing? I'm trying to squeeze every you know, sinew of progressive <laughs> policy out of this council. Uh, as, as far as I understand, you're responsible for the existing social housing stock, right? Um, so lots of people probably will have seen um, Quajo social housing um, yeah. on on, on yeah. Twitter. I actually met um, him before the election. Showing, yeah, really impressive yeah. guy. Sort of showing these scenes of people in horrific social yeah. housing, like floors falling through, damp sort of mold falling off the walls, you know, the, yeah. the worst possible yeah, living yeah. conditions you can imagine. Um, are there any, you know, has he done any exposés of people in, in, in Wandsworth where you sort of seen that video and thought, oh, fuck, I'm responsible for these people? Yeah, and, and it happens. I mean, we've got a huge amount of stock and there you, you try your best to deliver the best possible service you can, but there are things that are going to fall through. I mean, Quajo, again, I think has done more in the last, you know, what is it, like been two years since he, like yeah, that, yeah. you know, then it's just incredible what he's done and I've, you know, 
if he if he calls out Wandsworth, we never take it personally. It's you know he's, he's holding us to account. Um, we moved very fast on on mold and damp when we took over. Uh, we've absolutely made it a priority in terms of we have a special system now. So if you put in, you, you meant to get contact within twenty four hours, coming up with a sp specific hotline. Um, estate management, I would say, is the biggest challenge since taken over, largely because of. It's a really hard job. The estate managers we have in Wandsworth, they were covering patch sizes of a thousand. So they were covering a thousand units. Um, and that they, they hadn't seen any investment in their team for 25 years. So we've just, because of this this, this kind of strain on the, the teams and, you know, I've, I've gone to meet with them. I do feel like it is a, it is a kind of, it's a hard job. It's a hard job. You're dealing with very difficult circumstances. And the biggest challenge in London is repairs. So we as a council respond, try and book in repairs, but the COVID backlog of repairs for two years means that contractors are dealing with backlogs for all councils. They've promised the world to all councils. And I have to say, there seems to be a kind of systemic failure in terms of repairs contractors in London at the moment. And I'm sure other cabinet members will agree with me and housing associations too, which is that they've taken on too much work they're, instead of saying we can't take on this work and, and they've got their own challenges you know supply challenges brexit loss of staff so and is that could you could you bring it in house could you bring it in and say, yeah, we're, we we're try gonna... and we try so we put our job adverts we say look we want to and we we, we have an in-house team and the in-house team is can't keep up with the amount of work that needs to mm. be done we put job adverts out can't get people to to join the roles often getting poached by the contractors Contractors will come around and they'll say that they've knocked on your door and you weren't in, but you know the person's been home and taken a day off work mm. and they get really mad and they get mad at the council, but that the estate managers have booked in the works. So they can't control what the contractors are doing. So there's a kind of Kirillianization of housing repairs, I'd say, in London, whereby we're kind of at the behest of these very large contractors who are struggling to keep up with work, to have all the pressures of the current economic situation on them. And we have very little control. And I think that's leading to a lot and lot of frustration and anger from tenants. But like I say, as a local authority, we have we have moved incredibly fast on mold and damp and we want to make it an absolute priority. So we have a, we have a systematic approach. You know, you, you make the complaint, we come, we check it out. We, we, you know, we come do a mold wash and a treatment. If it comes back, PIV ventilation system gets installed. And then if that doesn't work, then we look for more kind of, we realize there might be a structural problem and, and we investigate that way. Um, but that was something we moved on fast. Like I, even, I, you know, I did a video, I wanted to do a video about modern damp because I know it's something that residents are really anxious about and worried about. Um, so your, your current plan is to build a thousand council homes over the next two terms, around eight years. Um, if we were to get a Labour government um, after, you know, next year or the year after that, what could they do to allow you to build 3,000 homes over eight years? Yeah, so part of our, you know, radical policy of not doing cross-subsidy and of focusing purely on council rent to enshrine that public land is being used for council rent housing is in somewhat on the basis knowing that at some point the government will change. You know, we will get a Labour government and I'm desperately hoping it's as soon as possible because that Labour government needs to give local authorities more grant to build. Um, at the moment, like I said before, we are entering into a huge kind of, you know, there is the councils are going to be the engines of building because if you're a private developer, why would you build now? Um, house prices are either falling or they might be rising, but they're certainly not rising ahead of the amount that costs, costs are rising. So you've got private development, private development is stalling. Housing associations are turning to look into how they maintain their stock because it's really expensive for them as well. And they're, they're being, we were all being hit with these new um, duties around decent home standard, fire safety regulations, retrofitting. We haven't even talked about retrofitting. Huge, huge fiscal challenges because our budgets are, are not expanding. Um, so... In in that context, local authorities, because we're not, you know, we're not being driven by profit, being driven by trying to serve need, government has to step in and deliver us more grants so that we can do this. I mean, 
I have money, essentially. We need if, money. If, if, if the we government, need money. If the government gave you more money, you could build 3,000 yep. council yep. homes over the next eight yep. years. And for those who are fiscally conservative, we'll be saving money as well. Because at the moment, billions in housing benefit is going into the pockets of private landlords because we ha those people aren't in council housing. Council housing is an incredible thing because you get rent from it that goes back to the council so you can maintain the stock. You know, like... For those who are, you know, I'm, I'm not fiscally conservative, I'm a socialist, but for, for those who are worried about, you know, the, the financial implications of council house building programmes, this is, think of it like infrastructure. Think of it the same way. You're investing way as, in assets. You're investing, right? in, you're investing in assets. You're investing With a guaranteed in, return. Health, the impacts on health, the impacts on the NHS of having a warm, safe, secure home, massive. The impact on education and attainment, warm, safe, secure home. The impact on people's, kind of general well-being and productivity of not having to travel through you know two hours a day from their temporary accommodation to just just all of these things are solved by this really key piece of infrastructure spending so a, a new labor government needs to and you know we're hearing we're hearing good things about making social housing the second largest tenure in the country like absolute mass council house building program led by councils giving councils that capacity again to deliver um I think is 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 you know. I, pl I plucked I plucked three thousand out of the air for some reason. If money were no limit, how many social how many social housing units would you try and build over the next two council terms? So there's a I mean, the the again the thousand homes program. Why I think it's special is because it's protecting that last remnant of public land from privatisation. But these are like these aren't the ideal sites. We're there's an infill program. We're choosing the pockets of land that we can build on because, you know. There has to be some understanding that in London, land is going to be a challenge because we are going to need to buy into private land holding. So we either take over private land. Is there still private land to develop in London? Is there, is there still brownfield sites? Yeah, of course. There are. I mean, they're shrinking. They're shrinking massively. But yeah, yeah. And things will change and things will get, you know. You're not going to have to knock down rows of terraced houses and replace them with incredibly dense tower blocks. No, no, I don't. Well, I mean, this is not going to help your re-election campaign. We're not going to do that. Yeah, we're not going to do that, Michael. Um, but the 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 I think it is a it is realistic to recognise that, for instance, councils buying in section one hundred six. That's what councils are starting to do now, rather than a housing association saying, "Okay, private developer, build us some housing, and then we'll run it and and and, and we'll own it." Then you've got vacant sites. I mean, JRF published a really incredible paper i think it was two weeks ago about the housing downturn that we're facing jo joseph, joseph Rountree Foundation. yeah um talking through a, a, a whole range of policies because obviously private development is going to stall many are going to sit on development sites and not develop them they're going to kind of land bank national government can do loads of things to help change that they can say we'll charge full council you know let local authorities charge full council taxes if the building had been built to incent you know or you know let other companies compulsory purchase the land if they say they can deliver faster. And there are all kinds of different reforms a, a, a Labour administration can do, and I'm sure that they're thinking thinking about them. Um, we have to push as well. You know, I like I'm, people know I'm on the left of the party. We have to push for housing policies to be as progressive as possible, largely because you notice as a councillor how many vested interests there are when it comes to development and housing. Like you get these emails, you, you know, you see... You know, and I, I feel comfortable saying this, and it's not to pass judgment, but you know, lots of people who do my job end up going to work for like a PR company that advises developers on the planning system and things like that. You know, there is a revolving door often, and I think a Labour government will be under lots of pressure to try and, you know, do things that maybe aren't necessarily totally in the public interest and. Uh, we as campaigners on housing justice need to articulate, you know, we are absolutely serious about the type of tenure and absolutely serious about prioritising council housing. Because um, like I said, the more people we take out of the temporary accommodation is more stocked to go around. Every time we, rem we always, you know, the, 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 like you were talking about before, the zero sum argument that often gets raised. We always talk about, we always talk about, um, you know, building a new unit so that uh, uh, is a way of, you know, build a market unit so that you house someone and supply demand. But with social housing, it's exactly the same. We're just doing it in a way that is benefiting those 
who are in the most vulnerable and precarious situation and often have the lowest incomes and often have the highest needs. So it's just, for me, it's a progressive solution to the housing crisis that is also relevant to those who care about supplying homes. How long have you been cabinet member for housing? Eight months, uh, May, since, well, since the end of May, because we got sworn in at the end of yeah, May. Yeah, eight, nine, ten months, we'll do the maths afterwards. Um, what are you most proud of? We've done quite a lot, quite fast. So, okay, so leaseholders. We haven't talked about leaseholders. Lots of, you know, Wandsworth, loads of people bought under right to buy. Assumption that they're, they're always wealthy. Well, many of them bought under right to buy in the 80s. So they've got on low incomes. When we maintain a block, when we say fix the roofs or put in double glazing to make it warmer, they get hit with very high bills. So for resident leaseholders, we extended the repayment period from... Uh, 10 months, which is often terrifying for people. You get £15,000 bill, you've got to pay it in 10 months. Four years interest-free. Really good thing to like show that we're, you know, as well as prioritising council housing, we're prioritising residents, you know, people who live on our estates who might own their own property. Uh, resident leasehold only, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, uh, we've moved, <laughs> you know, the, the, the thing that is so amazing about the Thousand Homes programme is going and looking at the new homes and speaking to people who've, who've, who've moved into them. Now, some of those were being built under the, the last administration. It's fantastic, wonderful to go and speak to people who are being rehoused, going to the sites, speaking with families who live on the estate who you know are currently in overcrowded accommodation and are looking forward to moving into a new home. Um, lifetime tenancies was like wonderful policy, uh, you know, gives people that security, makes people realize that social housing tenure is valued in Wandsworth. Um, investing in our estate managers, investing in the people who maintain and look after our residents for the first time in 25 years. We're increasing the service by 25%, massive investment. Investment in our homelessness prevention staff. Again, they were cut in 2013, just at the precipice of the crisis. It's why Wandsworth has some of the highest temporary accommodation numbers and some of the worst prevention numbers. So investing in those teams, investing in those services, really, really important. We helped with eco uh, eco three funding applications. This is before I even won. I was getting officers to apply for eco three. We won. We're doing cavity wall insulation on houses that we can get it. We're making sure that all of our major works and capital spend program are doing. You know, if if we're doing renewing a roof, how do we get insulation in there? How do we make the the, the homes warmer? Um, I could I I could go on, but I'll, I'll I'll leave it there. It's we've moved we've moved fast. That's just in like an eighth month period, and then obviously to our private renters, getting that licensing scheme up will be massive. If we can improve conditions for private renters in Wandsworth, they're a key part of the borough. They're you know, Wandsworth I think is one of the youngest boroughs in the country. Lots and lots of young people move there, and they're mostly in the private renters sector. We've got to make sure that they've got safe, you know, safe housing that their landlords are, uh, are you know, meet a certain standard and are, and are held to that standard. I'm getting nostalgic for all those uh, elections where I've been knocking on doors for Iden and then going back to that room where you get your bits of paper from and you telling us what the pitch is, what we're supposed <laughs> to tell people you'll do. Um, Iden Dickadam, it's been an absolute pleasure um, being joined by you on Crash Course. Thank you so much. Nice one. That was Iden Dickadam speaking to me about his role as Cabinet Member for Housing in Wandsworth. And we've only got one episode left of this series, so do look out for that. Then we're going to be moving on to a new one. We're very excited about it. So if you haven't subscribed already, make sure you do so. And do please, um, if you feel able to, support us on Patreon. That's at patreon.com forward slash Crash Course Pod. For now, you've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.